So good morning, everyone. I want to continue uh, this morning uh, investigating the theme of practicing with anger. Uh, and uh, most of us, I think, were here last week when I introduced the theme. But how many were not here last week? So that's a lot. <laughs> so um, I hope you're not angry about that. But, but I think what I'll, what I'll do is I will do a little bit of review from last time. And my intention today is particularly to focus on really on uh, some review of last time, particularly focusing on the question of why anger is a challenging and sometimes confusing area to practice and also why it's important. And uh, secondly, look at how we do individual practice with anger. And thirdly, look at how we might do practice with anger in a more... um, relational way, interpersonally, and even bringing it to the social realm. How do we work with anger? Um, First individually, and then more relationally. So that's what I want to explore today. And it really, um, it complements some material that I wrote up when I wrote my book, The Engaged Spiritual Life, which was published about two and a half years ago. Uh, I have a whole chapter there on working with anger in the context of connecting inner transformation with uh, social service and social change work. And I brought a few copies of the book, if you want to take a look. They're over in the corner here, if you want to take a look afterwards. So first, uh, some review about why why it's important to look at practicing with anger and how we practice individually with anger. This is what we covered last time. And for those who don't know, the the talks generally on Wednesdays are available at the Dharma Seed website where you can download them or listen to them on the web. So uh, to the extent that the um, Spirit Rock administrative staff can keep up with the talks, they are brought to the the website. So uh, for all I know, I haven't checked, but for all I know, last week's talk is up there. Is it? Oh, very good. Already is up there. So, uh, so first of all, practicing with anger, I think, is a very significant part of our practice, but it's a very confusing part. I mentioned last time how it's definitely on the uh, list of the top five themes that people ask about in Dharma settings. People ask more questions about anger than they do about enlightenment or death or sex. And um, I think that's partly because it's a very uh, challenging area, partly because there's a lot of confusion, and partly because it comes up a fair amount in the areas that are important for us, in intimate relationships, at work, in families, connected with social justice and so forth. It's a very crucial area, but it, it, is, it is very confusing. Um, I mentioned last time some of the roots of that confusion, that we basically hear different messages about anger, actually diametrically opposing messages quite often. We hear often that anger is negative, but we also hear that it's sometimes positive. So we hear, for example, in Western tradition, we hear that uh, in the Jewish tradition, it's said that God loves those who don't get angry. That could be taken as a strong suggestion <laughs> for how one acts. But we also find At the same time that that's found in the Hebrew Bible, we also find the Jewish prophets who seem to spend most of their time angry. (laughs) And they're angry at injustice, you know, and they, they, they rant and they rave and they seem to channel anger through them in a way that's connected with injustice. And we even find that in the Hebrew Bible that God gets angry, you know, 
This is, is this a double standard? <laughs> you know, uh, God gets angry, and uh, and yet we hear, and I mentioned last time, uh, uh, something from a very beautiful book by uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel. I brought in a copy of it, uh, a book called The Prophets. He has a chapter here called the, the Meaning and Mystery of Wrath, and he talks about, he says, his understanding of the anger of both the prophets and of God is that it's actually connected with love. And that the love is actually much deeper than the anger, but the anger comes out connected with love. But that can be confusing. How do we make sense of that? We find that in many Western traditions. We find a sense that uh, anger is both condemned as negative. In the ancient Greek tradition, you find that. And yet anger is sometimes said to be appropriate. There's, let's see, this is... Let's see if I have this here. This is, from, uh, this is from the Greek philosopher Aristotle. A person is praised for being angry under the right circumstances and with the right people and also in the right manner. <laughs> At the right time and for the right length of time. <laughs> this is from like, what, three or four hundred years BCE. Those who do not show anger at things that ought to arouse anger are regarded as fools. Interesting. Yet it is not easy to determine in what manner, with what person, on what occasion, for how long a time one ought to be angry, and at what point right action ends and wrong action begins. So there's a strong acknowledgement that anger can lead to unethical action. That's, that's obvious, because also in that Greek tradition, very much a sense that anger causes, uh, leads to wars leads to horrible events. And so that anger can lead to very destructive action. Same to find the same thing in the Christian tradition. Anger is one of the seven deadly sins, and yet it's seen that uh, anger at injustice is sometimes appropriate. And you have the example of Jesus throwing out the money changers from the temple with what seems to be anger. So seem to be getting mixed messages. You seem to also get it very much from uh, the Buddhist tradition. We seem to, or at least... We seem to get that, um, at least from some, uh, some approaches. We have, uh, let me see, from the Dhammapada, it said, give up anger, conquer anger with non-anger. If one is not angry, then one enters into the presence of the gods. Guard against anger erupting in your body. Guard against anger erupting in your speech. Guard against anger erupting in your mind. And yet we also find people who seem, even in the Buddhist traditions, especially contemporary tradition, seem to, um, seem to think that anger can be helpful, that it, it can, be, can be useful. And last time I quoted um, Jack Kornfield, um, who said, we can find gold in the judgment and anger we have, for within them is the valuing of justice and integrity. Isn't this confusing? You know, we get, seem to get both messages. Anger uh, is bad. Anger is sometimes okay. You know, and so, when's it, like Aristotle says, when's it okay? With whom? For how long? What circumstances? Give me the details, please, and so I can be appropriately angry at the right times and not be so confused. And um, to make this worse, I mentioned last time how when one looks at the actual um, words in the Buddhist text and looks for their connotations, the Asian words, Pali, Sanskrit, Tibetan, that are translated as anger seem much closer to hatred in their connotations. And in those languages, the words translated as anger do not have the connotations of anger sometimes being appropriate. Much closer to hatred to the point where I mentioned last time, when the Dalai Lama reflected on this issue, he said, we should not translate from these languages words which are entirely taken to be negative. We should not translate them as anger, because anger has different connotations in Western languages. So I would suggest that actually when we read a lot of the translations, it's confusing, and maybe we should use other words than anger. But we read these texts, like Shanti Deva I mentioned last time, a moment of anger destroys a thousand eons of good work. Eighth century, you find that. 
maybe shouldn't be translated as anger, but it, when it is, and you have this cultural background of confusion about anger. I mentioned how one psychologist, Carol Tavris, who wrote a book on anger, said, anger is the emotion about which we are most confused of all the emotions in the last 3,000 years. And you can see why. And add to that the roots that they're all, there are a lot of different cultural messages about anger. Generally, in Northern European culture, in recent history, anger tends to be suppressed. Emotions often tend to be suppressed. You know, many of us grew up with that. It's very different in Eastern Europe or, or Southern Europe. I spent several years living in uh, Little Italy, in Boston. <laughs> Anger was out there kind of nonstop. You know, it was just not a very different cultural approach, you know. So you'd walk down the street the w- in the summer, the windows would be open, and you'd hear all sorts of wild stuff coming from apartments, you know, in, in, in um, the north end of Boston. You didn't get a pen, did you? I didn't. Flying out the window, my grandmother used to go. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I never happened. No, actually, I think I, I got adopted into one of the exclusive social clubs. In the North End, they would invite me in to play cards and watch Boston Red Sox baseball games. Um, but but the, it was very interesting that anger was not at all suppressed, whereas in Northern European countries it is. And in some Asian countries, anger is suppressed. So you get very different messages. Sometimes it's a class thing. People in middle class or upper class tend in this country to suppress their anger. Or it tends to only come out explosively, like when people are drinking or something like that. So it's very confusing, you know. Um, what's you know? And I mentioned how you put all this together, and you come out, you um, look at Buddhist practitioners, and we can get very confused about anger. We can think that by suppressing our anger, which we're doing primarily because we haven't, let's say, for example, we haven't outworked our conditioning. We can mistake our conditioning for spiritual integrity, if that makes sense. We can mistake our aversion to even getting anywhere close to anger, which may be there from our upbringing or from our cultural background or class background, and we can mistake that for being a really spiritual person because I don't get angry, not because we've explored it, but because it's been suppressed. And so a lot of confusion possible and and almost... um, Necessary. So, in a Buddhist setting, it might be felt as really a sign that I'm spiritually deficient if I actually express anger. It can be quite confusing, and I think it is in Buddhist in many Buddhist communities. So, so I think it gives uh, um, can give some pause, and it, and it makes some sense of why people ask questions about anger so much. What I suggested last time is that we can practice with anger, uh, especially just by opening to it and seeing what it's about. I told the story last time about how I learned especially a lot about anger in one retreat when I was angry for 10 days in a row for about 16 or 18 hours a day and lived to tell the tale. <laughs> and But it was very amazing to explore that because I found that that I found a lot of things that helped me make sense of some of why there is that confusion. For example, I found that there were many, many kinds of anger. And some of them were uh, clearly not helpful, destructive, petty, reactive, and so forth. But some of them seem to have a connection with um, something beneath the anger. Often the anger when I used mindfulness practice and stayed with it, um, had a kind of sadness beneath it or hurt, which was very helpful to know. So the anger, in a sense, was um, um, covering over something deeper. And when I would go beneath that, I would sometimes find a quality of, of love. So I could find that it was actually possible for love to coexist with anger in some sense, which in the, in the Buddhist uh, tradition, as we receive it, tra- using those words and translating them as anger, it doesn't make sense. 
anger is simply taken to be aversion. So I get another reason maybe not to, to be careful about the translations. If that, are you following me here? So um, one of my students uh, who wrote, wrote a, a brilliant 400-page dissertation on anger about eight or ten years ago named Robert Masters and has since published a book on it and has published a beautiful article and you might go to his website. He has a website. He's a teacher and therapist in the Vancouver area and he, uh, his website is at Robert Augustus Masters. He wrote a brilliant essay summarizing that 400-page dissertation in an essay which won a prize for the best essay in the Journal of Transpersonal Psychology uh, in, a, in, I think, 2001, which is on his website. It's, about, you know, it's like a 20-page article, really, to, to read. And one of the things that he was really wonderful at was um, clarifying more of the confusion. I mean, I didn't even mention how you look even to the realm of psychotherapy and you find totally disparate approaches. Some therapists say, let it out, express it, have cathartic anger, and so forth. And others say, don't do that, it's bad. It's, you know, keep it in, cognitively reprocess it inside, you know, and deal with it there. And don't, don't do that, that cathartic stuff's nonsense, you know. <laughs> and so, who do you believe? You know, what do you know? So, but also, one of the things which I really appreciated, he, he clarified how in many spiritual traditions, there is the existence of anger connected with love. And he talked about what he called heart anger which I think is a kind of a brilliant uh, construct. And he talked about this as making some sense of the actions of Jesus, throwing out the money changers, or um, the way that uh, in a spiritually mature person, one can be with the anger, with mindfulness, and without reactivity, and can in a way work with the anger in a way which is not trying to harm the others. The great fear about anger is that it leads to harming. That when it's acted on, it leads to harming. So its question is, is it possible to be with anger without having that trigger that leads to harming? And Robert had this, let me see where his... He gave these examples of what he called hard anger uh, through spiritual tradition. So he gave the example, some of you know in the Tibetan tradition, the story of Milarepa, who Milarepa is right at the back of the hall, listening, sitting in the mountains and listening. And Milarepa had a teacher named Marpa who seemed to have been very, very angry with him, basically to help uh, work him into shape. And this is what Marpa said. He was really delineating a kind of anger which had love connected with it. I was angered at Milarepa, and although my anger recoiled upon me, like a wave of water, it was not vulgar worldly anger. Spiritual anger is a thing apart, and in whatever form it may appear, it has the same objective, to stimulate repentance and thereby to contribute to the spiritual growth of the person. Seems to be something where, where um, anger can be connected with love. I think that was, that's what you find also in the Western tradition. Uh, the French writer Georges Sand said... Uh, looking at anger and injustice, he said this, anger, humanity is outraged in me and with me. We must not dissimulate nor try to forget this indignation, which is one of the most passionate forms of love. Very interesting. But it's a mature kind of anger, and I think it presupposes the ability to be mindful with anger, to not have it lead to action, necessarily that is destructive. And I think it's a fairly advanced way to be with anger. So how do we move towards that, if that's, if that's an aspiration? How do we practice with anger? Individual practice, I mentioned last time, we can think of these three main ways to practice with anger. Uh, I, I identified mindfulness, reflection, and heart practices. That we have to first use mindfulness simply to explore what anger is. And for many of us, and for me in that retreat on anger, that was the main form of practice I used. So when anger arises, can I just be with it and study it and know what it's about? This is the starting point. 
It's to really be with the anger in our sittings or sometimes when they occur in the moment. And initially suspend the compulsive or um, typical link between having anger and acting on it. So that's a fundamental starting point. The ability to have the anger be present without it leading necessarily to action. Not so easy. Mindfulness is very helpful, but it's very helpful to remember that we can take that as a kind of starting point, starting guideline for working with anger. Can I, when, when an anger occurs, can I be with it and know and make a distinction between uh, being angry and acting out of the anger? A lot of the condemnations of anger in Western and Eastern traditions, I think, are there because it's taken that a moment of anger necessarily leads to a reaction and to harming behavior. So if we distinguish between the experience and the ensuant action, that helps a lot. It also gives us some guidelines. When we get angry, we can be careful, very, very careful, about tendencies to act quickly and really look at that. Some of you may have seen a book by Thich Nhat Hanh in which for his community, he has the members of his community in France agree to what's called a peace treaty with each other. In that peace treaty, people agree neither to suppress anger nor to act it out. This is the middle way where we investigate it where we neither suppress it nor, nor act out. And he, the peace treaty says, if I have been angry with you, I agree not to act out immediately, but to look for the right time to talk with you about it. He's, in that particular version, it says, within one week. <laughs> within one week, but to actually find a way to um, be with the content of the anger when I'm not reactive starting point. Then we can be mindful of the anger. It's just very important to study the anger, see what it's like in the body, to really open to it without trying to get rid of it, without trying to somehow fix it. What is it like? Can you just hang out with your anger? Not so easy. The anger is very compelling and comes with a storyline which is usually... (laughs) which is usually what? I'm right, you're wrong. <laughs> Usually. I, I think it could, sometimes we can get angry at ourselves, and it's sort of like the angry part of me is right and the bad part of you is wrong. It's talking to myself. So we can be angry at ourselves. But the, that's the usual storyline, which is fairly um, um, immature, I would say. And so just to be mindful of the anger tends to Um, not have that storyline lead to action. I think it's that storyline which leads to destructive behavior in large part. So when we stay with mindfulness, we start to work with the anger. We start to see it. When we stay with it long enough, sometimes we see that and and we just hang out with the anger, sometimes we can feel there's um, hurt connected with it or sadness. You know, if I'm... um, angry at a friend for not keeping an agreement that's important, or a partner, or someone at work, and I get really angry, I can stay with it and maybe I I feel, oh, I'm really disappointed that this person didn't do this, that he or she said he would do, he or she would do. And, or with a partner, you know, I can feel, uh, oh, there's painful that we didn't keep this agreement, or that you didn't keep this agreement. (laughs) Um, and I can feel that sadness, and if I stay with that, sometimes I can also feel that beneath that there's care and love. And I can also sometimes investigate anger which doesn't have those qualities. Maybe it doesn't have a link with love. Maybe it's just really reactive, insistent, and self-righteous, and doesn't go. But mostly when we can be mindful of anger, it yields something else. And so we can be present with it. We can 
initial thing with mindfulness is simply to name it when it's there. If, you, if when you're angry, you say anger, that's 80% of the work. Because what the destructive aspects of anger, there's a kind of trance that we're in, and we can't break it. Just to name it, this is anger, breaks the trance uh, significantly. So we can explore the anger, and we can start to notice what kind of patterns are there for my anger. We can start to use anger as a way to see more deeply uh, how I tend to react. You know, to, for each of us, generally in meditation, to study our main reactive patterns is part of what leads to transformation. We each need to become experts and connoisseurs of our own ways that we lose it. And actually, at a certain point, we can get really interested in that. At first, it's kind of like, oh my God, that again. But after a while, we can get really interested in our main ways that we get confused or lost or or act uh, unskillfully. So the second area is reflection, and that is particularly taking an approach that's helped by thoughts to orient ourselves to a situation. We might say, I'm angry, let me take this as a learning experience, rather than just an opportunity to inflict my righteousness on the world. Can I learn from this? Can I see my own part in a given situation? These are, for many of us, obvious, but they're valuable to do. Can I see my part in the situation? To what extent am I creating a strong dualism of this totally good me and bad you? To what extent am I um, seeing the other as entirely bad? Can I reflect and see at least one good quality in the other person? Can I see some ways that I may be like the other person? That's a big one. (laughs) Um, We can reflect sometimes and just ask, how would sometimes, how would someone whom I admire deal with the anger in this situation? How would a mentor or teacher or Buddha or Kuan Yin be in the situation and respond? That can be a reflection that can be very helpful. A lot of times what's hard about anger is that we don't have mindfulness and we don't have any reflection. Once we get to mindfulness and reflection, it can be very helpful. And then there's the practice that uh, using metta or forgiveness, heart practices that are very powerful to do towards ourselves, towards the others, so that we can have some compassion towards these kind of conflicts in which we're at loggerheads with another person or with ourselves. Sort of like a heart practice. Um, Maybe, is it a short question? Because if it's a longer one, better to wait a while. Is it just a... There's a book called Anger Quieting the Storm from Within. And the thing that was most helpful for me in, in, in all of it was that anger comes from unmet expectations. And that's been very helpful to me whenever mm-hmm. I feel that situation. You're talking about how to respond to it. Mm-hmm. And I was just wanted to throw in that as soon as I feel anger, I think about unmet expectations, and that mm-hmm. gives me the ability to deal with it, which mm-hmm. is what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. so that you can ask a question, is there an underlying need beneath my anger or an underlying expectation? Often there is. Sometimes it's hard to know, but there often can be something beneath the anger that can be more genuine that's getting expressed as, you know, as anger. Um, so we can use these reflections... And we can really, I think, uh, to the extent that we get lost in it, we can also use the loving-kindness practice. Very helpful, just to bring the heart into it, into the situation. To do loving-kindness towards ourselves, towards the other. 
And then I want to just finish by talking about some ways to bring the practice with anger into a relational situation. Most of what we've talked about so far just is really working with uh, ourselves as individuals and very, very crucial. But what do we do in an interaction with someone else with anger? What do we do in an interaction with the whole society when there's anger towards a policy or, you know, like, I don't know, what's going on in Iran right now? A lot of anger out there. Um, How do we work with uh, anger and injustice? These are large issues, but I want to give just a few guidelines that can be helpful. One of them is that I think it's very important, whatever we do, to combine our own inner work with the anger with a response outwardly. That both are crucial. If we're doing something with uh, a policy at a workplace or in the society, it's very important for, for me to do that inner work that we've just described, the work of mindfulness, reflection, heart practices, at the same time that we try to be skillful outwardly. What I'm primarily will be talking about is how to be skillful outwardly with anger, but it's really crucial to do the inner work at the same time. For me, this is something actually very exciting, to actually do inner work and outer work at the same time in our lives, in our relationships, and so forth. A second guideline is to remember the ethical principles, (laughs) the ethical precepts. When there's anger, stay with the ethical guidelines, which are about non-harming, and make a commitment to them. Just to remember that I want to follow ethical guidelines helps tremendously. Because again, the main condemnation of anger is that it leads to harming behavior. So if I'm committed to following the ethical precepts and to remember the ethical precepts when I get angry, that can be huge. You know, it, it, it's like a boundary that when I go over it, I start getting like the equivalent of cell phones buzzing and ringing and so forth, you know. Something happens and I just say, oops, I'm getting into harming behavior. You know, and when you follow the ethical guidelines enough, that happens, you know. And we can feel that, whether it's speech or something that we're doing. And we, I think, uh, hopefully most of us, make a commitment, a strong commitment, not to harm ourselves or others. And that's huge for working with anger, just to remember that, to recall Part of the ethical guidelines is working skillfully with speech, and that's huge for anger. In fact, uh, it's one of the main reasons to really cultivate uh, wise speech, mindful speech, is to help us with these kind of difficult situations where we get angry. And how can we use um, skillful speech in situations of anger? I want to look at that a little bit. Um, One would just be to follow the guidelines of wise speech, which are to be truthful, helpful, to try to come from a warm heart, and to have good timing. (laughs) So, not just Aristotle talked about good timing, the Buddha did as well. 2,600 years ago, the Buddha is just walking around saying, good timing. Good timing, good timing like that. It's true, and it's, it's huge, you know, like you can, have, you can have the first three components of wise speech, be truthful, helpful, come from this really warm heart and have bad timing, and, and the situation fo- totally falls apart. Unfortunately, it, it takes all four at the same time. So, but to remember those guidelines is very, very helpful for any situation of anger. You know, when we're angry, there's such a energy in our bodies. It's almost like the energy in our bodies. And I was um, helped in this last week by, with my topic because I actually had something come up which, for which I was angry for several days about. This doesn't, you know, it's not my typical weekly experience, but it actually happened. I said, oh, this is really helping my research for the talk, <laughs> talk today. But, it, but it, it, so I was, I was sitting there saying, okay, mindfulness, reflection, heart practices, Donald, and not just to talk about the stuff, but <laughs> and and um, but it, but the energy of anger is so compelling, isn't it? 
it's like, oh, my, it's just, it's strong in the body. It kind of almost takes us away. And we need these, we need these uh, guidelines for practicing with it. And, and so to uh, have these guidelines really helps. And, and of course, one of the best things is just this, what I mentioned earlier, to, to wait a little while, to take a time out, to not give in to that very strong energy of anger if it feels like it's not balanced. You know, and I think as we get more skillful with it, we can sometimes be with the strong energy and be quite balanced. I think that's what Robert Masters is talking about when he talks about heart anger, where the energy can be really strong, but where there's a centeredness, a mindfulness, and a connection with the heart. That's an advanced capability, I think, but something that, in, in my view, is something we can um, aim for. So we can um, have these guidelines we can try to have mindfulness of what's going on, to really track ourselves when there's anger and know that there's anger. So mindfulness in the midst of uh, interaction, her speech. Now, this is, what I'm suggesting is actually a lot, not so easy, right? But it can be a direction that we work towards. You know, working with the guidelines for wise speech, having some awareness of what's going on. Um, very helpful is just to do things like take timeouts and take deep breaths. Ground in your body. Um, take a few deep breaths and kind of come back to yourself. Have some larger, larger perspective. Um, another important point is to try to take the perspective of the other person. <laughs> Impossible, right? <laughs> but think about it. It's very crucial. In a, situ- in a relational situation involving anger, can I take the perspective of the other? And can I have that be a way that I typically work with anger? Kind of commonsensical, right? But not so easy. Can I have some empathy? You know, it might lead me to want to talk to the other person before I discharge my anger, to find out what actually is going on for the other person. A lot of times, I think we know this, when we actually hear the inner experience of another person, our tendency is more towards forgiveness, that a lot of the anger comes because we don't actually know what's going on for the other person. But we have built this storyline up in our minds. Is that familiar? And so to try to be empathic, to, and sometimes we have to ask what's going on. You know, um, I think it was uh, uh, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow said something, I'm paraphrasing here, he said something that if we could know the secret inner life of our enemies, we would only end up with compassion. If we actually knew what they were experiencing. But of course what happens in relationships or in the society is that actually human beings don't meet human beings, but storylines meet storylines. And so if we can somehow bring it back to this, let me hear your story. You know, it's like uh, some of you know, do you know that poem by Mary Oliver where she says, please tell me about your despair and I'll tell you about mine. There's a beautiful poem. I, I forget the, the poem. Wild Geese. Wild Geese. Wild Geese. The poem Wild Geese. Uh, near the beginning of that poem it says, please tell me about your despair and I'll tell you about mine. And something like that. Tell me, your, tell me your stories. Let's exchange our stories. Beautiful way to work with anger, if you can get there. You know, a lot of people have full-time jobs as mediators and peacemakers trying to help people, communities, countries get to that place where they can actually talk to each other. I think when they get there, a lot of things tend to dissolve. So getting there is really, really crucial. I think as was mentioned, your name again? Martin. Martin. As Martin suggested, uh, there often can be expectations beneath the anger. Or there can be, we can say, there can be needs, uh, unmet needs that are beneath the anger. And so another way to work skillfully with oneself and others in the situation of anger is to ask, what is this person's underlying need? What is my need beneath the anger? To be able to tend to look for that, typically there's going to be some kind of pain beneath all anger. 
which will be a, a little different from the storyline. And so if we, and we can know that in mindfulness practice for ourselves sometimes, sometimes we can know that by reflection, but we can start being trained to see, to look for that, to feel for that, to tune into that in the other person. When there's anger being directed at me, <clears throat> and this is not easy and not an introductory practice, can I tune in to the pain beneath the other person's anger? When, I'm, when I see anger on the television set, can I tune into the um, pain beneath it? Because when we can do that, everything starts to change. And it tends to evoke compassion. And maybe can make us be less defensive. Now, that's hard. Not easy at all. And then there are ways of speaking. And maybe I'll finish with this. There are ways of speaking in which we try to, can be, try to be very, very careful with language that implies judgment or blaming. Some of you know the discipline of nonviolent communication. How many people know nonviolent communication? Not, not so many. About every two years, I offer a seven day retreat on mindfulness, wise speech, and nonviolent communication. It's a, it's a, I think there's books in the bookstore. Marshall Rosenberg wrote a book, Nonviolent Communication. And there are other people. I think Sharon Ellison, right? You, you showed me Sharon Ellison's book, Marty, a while ago. Very beautiful book. It's called what? Taking the War Out of Our Words. Taking the War Out of Our Words. Two excellent books to, to learn skillful ways of speaking. And the core of it is that can we speak about what's important and identify important needs or maybe expectations without being judgmental and without putting the other person on the defensive. Not so easy to do that. The key tends to be to try to really be careful about judgmental language. Because for most people, when we give them judgmental language, they go back to being about four years old and mommy has just, what, blamed me. And I'm a bad person, and I'm no good, and my, I, will, I will not survive, basically. <laughs> because I won't, if I don't, you know, if I'm bad, I won't get love, and I probably won't get food, and it's, it's bad. <laughs> you know? And so that's where people tend to go, even highly functional bureaucrats <laughs> or whatever. And so we, want, we can work on our speech, so we avoid that. That's not easy at all. It's a training, and some of you might want to take courses in nonviolent communication or read some of these books or work with that. So the key is looking out for language which is blaming and judgmental. We actually can say a lot of what we need to say without uh, going there. And the key is, and this could be a whole other talk, the key is actually staying in a grounded way with our own experience when we speak and say, basically saying, when you did this, I felt scared because I wondered if you were keeping the agreement and that's really important to me and could we talk about this or could we, would you be willing to um, tell me your view of what our agreement was? Something like that. It sets it up more to be a dialogue than a, as it were, a blaming and a judging and using language, whether we're uh, in a relationship, at work, or Look, working for justice in the larger society. That language is very important. I you know, personally would say that most activists are caught in dualistic language. They're mostly caught in the dualistic language of blaming and judging. And of course, just it tends to make the, the recipients of their critique either set up stone walls or you know, if it touches them at all, become four years old. And so, um, I think a whole other language in this, or I think we find that in some of the work of Gandhi and King, who took a, made major, major efforts to have their language basically treat the other with respect, but while being extremely firm about what the content of the uh, point was. So I think that's somehow, that's, that's a dance, isn't it? How can I be respectful, not blame, and yet be firm and stand up for what's important about my need, my expectation, our agreement, and so forth. So I think I'll end with a, a quotation.
from uh, another Buddhist teacher who teaches at Naropa, Judith Simmer Brown, who, who expressed, I think, the, the perspective on anger that I'm suggesting, which is that anger can carry important intelligence and even moral clarity, but that is very tricky to work with, and we need a lot of skill to work with it. I think these guidelines give some direction. This is what she said. I'll close with this. The energy of our anger can be transformed into positive and skillful action for others. The anger can transform into compassion. The energy of anger itself is completely pure. So if we can give up the dualistic quality, the energy becomes compassion, which can then benefit benefit others. Anger then has a positive outcome. I'm suggesting that as a possibility, but it needs all these steps. It needs all the steps of Uh, mindfulness, reflection, working with the heart, being skillful in our speech. But it's a direction to go. And I think it, without that, we'll tend to either act out our anger or suppress it. Neither of which are skillful, I think. And when we use these tools, we can then take the energy of anger, which I think is really crucial for deep and healthy relationships, good work situations, and a healthy society. And we can really, I think, uh, move in all these directions. So let's just sit for 30 seconds or a minute and then we can talk some together. So thank you so much for your attention. I could feel a lot of people following. And so any, any reflections or questions, insights, please, yeah. Well, I was here last week, and you asked us to observe our anger yeah, during yeah. the week, and I became very surprised by um, anger that happened repeatedly in exposure with, with one particular friend who's looking for a diagnosis. Something that is not yet known. It could be MS, it could be Guillain-Barre, it could be something else. And he's also running completely out of money, and we're trying to get him to his. I mean, there's a whole group of people trying yeah. to help him. And I have come, I was at his home realizing he's completely depleted in so many ways. And what came out of me was a burst of absolute rage and anger. Hmm. It was it was surprising to me. I mean, I was hearing the words coming out of my mouth, and I was shocked. And this emotion was so strong. Yeah. And I couldn't figure out what was going on. Even in the moment, I was I was too busy being surprised. Yeah. And observing myself, I was doing it, but I had no capacity to do any of these wonderful, wise things that you're <laughs> advising us to do. And yeah. So, Later on, as I was reflecting on it, I was realizing that I felt horribly betrayed by him. Yeah. And there's no rhyme or reason or sense to that. And I was wondering if you can add any insights. Did everyone hear the question? Do you know in the back? So I'll repeat it some. Um, Your name is? My name is Wendy. That Wendy um, had a strong experience of anger that just sort of came. Uh, with with a friend who is uh, depleted and seems like a difficult medical condition, mm-hmm. unknown diagnosis, right? right? And was just uh, and felt this strong anger. Did not feel so clearly that she was using the tools at the time, but later had a sense that there was some sense of betrayal. We might say this was almost feeling something uh, connected with the anger. So I think. Um, so two things occur to me. One is that um, a lot of the practice with anger, sometimes when we first start exploring it, it we, we reflect on it after the fact. I think it's true with any strong emotion. When we set off to investigate the territory, it's not like, okay, I've heard this talk, go out, you know, and, you know, with the, you're driving through Francis Drake back to Fairfax and some driver cuts you off and, 
and you instantly say, ah. <laughs> I have three tools at my disposal. <laughs> so typically, we, we remember after the fact, you go through something with that driver, and then half an hour later, he says, hmm, maybe I should have used one of those tools, but too late now. <laughs> Or something like that. And um, so a lot of it, actually, the learning process occurs just by bringing attention. Sometimes we reflect after the fact, and that is how it works. Because that means if you reflect after the fact, the next time you may remember closer to the situation. So that's fine. And then it sounds like you were just by the movement of experience were seeing what was connected with the anger, which is, you know, you could do that with, with mindfulness. That sometimes we just know from the the flow of experience. And you might sit with it, and really it might be very helpful just to be present with it. You can even, um, if you choose to, even just remember the situation and use, sit with it and use these tools. A lot, of it, a lot of what I'm encouraging is just to be present with the anger without thinking it should go away, without, uh, without even trying to say, figure out what's underneath it, but just to stay with it. It's like the mindfulness has to have a certain amount of integrity where we're not trying to figure things out or make it go away. There's a little bit of a paradox, because I'm also saying, well, there might be something beneath it. So I, th- I would say just stay with it. There sound like there are a lot of issues there, but I think that when you sit with it and stay with it, they'll open up and reveal themselves to you. Mm-hmm. It brought up a sort of a related topic of the state of being angry at the victim. Yeah. And it might uh, be a state of being angry at the victim, and you probably had some judgments of yourself, I would think. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think just to watch the whole, I think it's important just to use the mindfulness to name what's happening. I'm feeling, gee, I'm blaming this person in this difficult condition, you know. I mean, it could easily lead to a lot of judgments of self. You know, who am I? What am I doing? You know, oh my God, if I'm, I'm guessing, that might be there, right? And so I think so to ha- uh, that's where the, so the mindfulness first tool, um, third tool, the heart practices, to really do some loving kindness or compassion for yourself and, and the person. Because it's, it's hard and it's, it's uh, very sobering to have those kind of experiences, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Just in, and, um, and so when we get into these very strong emotions, they don't always follow logic so clearly. And I think we have to just have some openness and compassion. So, but doing the practices can help. Thanks, thanks, Wendy. Yeah, please, yeah. I had uh, two questions. One was you talked about the duality of anger, and I wasn't clear what you meant. Do you mean the blaming? Yeah, the duality of good self, bad other, typically. Uh, okay. Yeah. Good self. And yeah. the other thing was <clears throat> we were talking about therapists being unclear about how they work with anger. And it seems to me that I read not too long ago that, remember back in the 70s when we were all beating each other with those styrofoam buffers and (laughs) pounding on pillows, that that the neuroscience has said that's really a bad thing to do because we're kind of um, strengthening the angry acting out. And I'm not sure if I remembered that right. I wondered if you knew. Yeah. Um, maybe maybe I'll finish with this this question. And I wish we had had more time, but I want to honor the closing time because it's a fascinating topic. Um, but yeah, I think that that's uh, something to look at. Uh, generally speaking, when you know, I, I think there can. For, first of all, uh, I think there are all these very mixed ideas in the therapeutic community uh, about the efficacy of. Um, uh, acting out or expressing, you know, and I think I think a key might be whether there's mindfulness. But I think simply to um, simply to indulge in a pattern, you know, like uh, I mean, Thich Nhat Hanh, when he wrote his book on anger, which is a good book to look at, he was very critical of therapists who just had people beating pillows. And it's kind of funny to hear Thich Nhat Hanh talking about beating the pillows and all this, but. He said it was very questionable because you're basically strengthening um, questionable patterns. 
I think from a neurophysiological point of view, that can happen. I think the key is whether there's mindfulness. And I think when there's mindfulness, mindfulness will tend to uh, interrupt the patterns, even if one is reliving them. So I think it's a little complicated in terms of a response. But if there's mindfulness, uh, and I think, it, because I think it's important to know what one's patterns are, but sim- some simple idea that by uh, indulging in anger with pillows or whatever, that that will somehow resolve things, uh, I think that's, that there are questions about that. You know, am I strengthening the behavior? It's really to see individually. I think you know, it's probably, it probably could be individual, case by case also. But I think the key would be, uh, as, we, as we know better now, would be whether there's mindfulness uh, with, with what one's doing. And, and I think there's a middle way in which we neither suppress nor indulge. And so I think that... that um, but for many of us, we're very scared at expressing anger. <clears throat> That's our conditioning. So how do we learn how to do that skillfully? Not so easy. And I think along the way we may, you know, it's not like we're going to be perfect when we start doing that. So I think we have to allow for that. But um, uh, so complex question. Yeah, thank you. Um, uh, one, is it a... Tie right onto that in, uh, in working with our clients. Uh, if Brett... That exercise will sometimes bring you to mindfulness. For yeah. People who really repress it. Yeah. It's not that I'm. Uh, that, that's my one of my favorite exercises, but I, I can see how you know someone moves the body, experiences yeah. it, and then from there they can start to find a place where they can go into a mindfulness. Yeah. To look at it. Yeah. So it's complex. I know Jack Kornfield in his book The Wise Heart talks about his own background with anger and having been in a family where anger was more or less not. Um, acceptable. And now he worked with a therapist uh, who had him really go into the anger and bring it up as a way of actually accessing it. So I think the, if it's been suppressed, skillful ways to access the anger are important. You know, and Because and, otherwise it, it stays suppressed. But that's, that's a matter of being skillful. And I think the key is, is, is uh, doing it in the context of mindfulness. And maybe with the context of some of the intentions which we've named here, ethical context, non-harming, um, be careful of uh, dualism, me good, you bad, basically. And so I think in, if, if, if that context is there, then we, I think we can use some of these tools that help access it if it's, if it's suppressed. So um, thank you. This is, this is rich. I could... Sorry about... I. I talked a little longer than I wanted to, which I sometimes do. And, um, but uh, thank you for, for this exploration, and um, may, you, may we keep exploring this in, in ways which are fruitful, and um, take some notes. So let's just sit for a minute to finish, and invite to be present what may have been helpful from the morning, along with your intentions for taking what we've worked without into your everyday lives. And so we bring to mind that we do this practice, these explorations, not just for ourselves, but also for others. And we offer the benefits of the morning, the fruits of our insights, our developing qualities. We offer them beyond these boundaries, out into the world for the benefit and healing and freedom of all beings.
thank you so much. And thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.